All right, baptism. Wayne Grudem says, The amazing truths of passing through the waters of judgment safely, of dying and rising with Christ, and of having our sins washed away, are truths of momentous and eternal proportion, and ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. If churches would teach these truths more clearly, baptisms would be the occasion of much blessing in the church. I don't know what your experience of attending your church's baptisms are, but ours, it's a party. Everybody shows up. It just, we, I love baptism Sundays. Romans 6, 4 and 5. We were therefore, we, uh, we were buried therefore by him, or with him, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Millard Erickson says this in his systematic, The knowledge that one has been baptized and therefore is united with Christ in his death and resurrection will be a constant source of encouragement and inspiration to the believer. Like circumcision in the Old Testament, baptism makes us sure of God's promises. So, let's define baptism. Westminster Confession of Faith says, Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration. It's interesting the Westminster Confession says that. We'll get to that in a little bit. Of remission of sins and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life. Which sacrament is by Christ on appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world? R.C. Sproul says this, Baptism is the sacramental sign of the new covenant. It is a sign by which God seals his pledge to the elect that they are included in the covenant of grace. First, we must be clear that it is not necessary for salvation. So there would be some who would claim uh, baptismal regeneration or a necessity of baptism for salvation. Um, We are not saved or regenerated by baptism. Baptism doesn't need to be added to repentance and faith in order to be saved. Salvation is by faith alone. But salvation is not a negotiable either. Just because we don't need it for salvation doesn't mean it's uh, an optional add-on to the Christian life. Um, Lord Erickson again says, Baptism is a powerful form of proclamation. It is a setting forth of the truth of what Christ has done. It is a word in water testifying to the believer's participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. A person is baptized into Christ when he believes, not when he is baptized with water. So baptism is a visible representation of what's happening when someone comes into faith, which is, Romans 6, being baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and baptism then is the visible reflection of that. So we're baptized into Christ at regeneration, but then we enter the waters of baptism to proclaim that to a watching world. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. Colossians 2, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And again, Romans 6, uh, 4 and 5 there. So, um, uh, William Hendrickson says this, What has been established, namely that believers are in principle dead to sin and alive to Christ, must become an abiding conviction of their hearts and minds. That takeoff point in all their thinking, planning, rejoicing, speaking, and doing. They must constantly bear in mind that they are no longer what they used to be. That's what baptism is doing. It's, it's helping the believer have a visible mark where they keep in mind that they are no longer who they once were because that old self has been died, buried. Now they've been resurrected to new life. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But this is where baptism is not an optional thing for the Christian. But whoever denies me before man, men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We're making a visible proclamation to a watching world that we identify with Christ. What it represents, it represents forgiveness and cleansing. Our sins have been washed away, and so we're cleansed. Acts 22 and now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's what it's representing. 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Titus 3, and he saved us not because of our works done in righteousness. Amen. Isn't that a, a wonderful reality? But according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 38, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For what? For forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness, cleansing. This is what is being imaged in baptism. Hebrews 10, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's what's being represented in baptism, as well as union with Christ. So not only is it showing that our sins and our uncleanness have been washed away, but it also shows that not only have we been purified from sins and those have been forgiven, but they were also been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Uh, we're also showing in baptism that we've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So it's worth reading again, Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What happened when Jesus died on the cross, we are now being brought into, that he sat under the wrath of God and bore our sins on our behalf and died in the judgment of God the Father. That's what we are now being brought into and united in Christ is that all of our sins were crushed underneath the righteous judgment of God the Father when Christ died. So our baptism is showing that all of those sins are being connected to the death of Christ. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united, you see that term there, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Uh, And then you have uh, Colossians 2 there again, but John Murray says this, uh, speaking of union with Christ, is not simply a step. So union with Christ, uh, this is in the book uh, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I don't know if you guys have read that yet or not. Phenomenal book. It, it, it goes through the ordo salutis. I need to keep moving here. But um, Redemption Accomplished and Applied is just phenomenal. Uh, he says this, though, in the chapter on union with Christ. is not simply a step in the application of redemption. When viewed according to the teaching of Scripture, in, in its broader aspects, it underlies every step in the application of redemption. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. So it's a visible union, as, as baptism represents a union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's a visible union in the death he endured for us. We've talked about that, death to sin's punishment. The punishment for our sins was paid on the cross as Jesus died and breathed his last. Also, uh, death to sin's power. In, In the waters of baptism, what we're showing is that the power of sin no longer has a hold on us as well. As we've been uh, buried and raised to new life, uh, we now serve a different master. So sin's power has been broken over us, and we are empowered to resist temptation and free to serve God. So it's a visible union of Christ's uh, death, but also a visible union in the resurrection he secured for us. We receive the newness of life now, regeneration, new creation, experience, of resurrection power. We will surely be raised on the last day. That's what baptism is representing. Just as Christ couldn't stay in the grave, but was vindicated by God the Father, there's no way. What baptism represents is we're not left, no pastors leaving the dude in the pond, okay? We're not dunking somebody and leaving them there to be dead. That'd be really bad pastoral care. Uh, We're pulling them out of the water Because just as Christ could not stay in the grave because of his perfect life and substitutionary death, but was raised to show vindication of paying a full atonement for sins, we too should not worry that we're going to be left in the grave. If we've been united in a death like his, we most certainly will be united in a life, in a resurrection like his. So we will be raised on the last day. You have fear of death, think about your baptism. If you're afraid to die, think about your baptism. That gets work done pastorally, boys. Um, You have somebody who's afraid to die. You look at what got accomplished when they were buried with Christ in baptism and what? They were raised. They were raised to walk in newness of life. He's not going to leave you in the grave. Um, So Jesus has secured eternal life for us and proved that. By his resurrection. Um, All right, Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, retu- until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the blood, body and blood of the Lord. Richard Baxter, <coughs> old Puritan, says this, Nowhere is God so near to a man as in Jesus Christ, and nowhere is Christ so familiarly represented to us in this, as in this holy sacrament. Wayne Grudem says this, The Lord's Supper is not simply an ordinary meal among human beings. It is a fellowship with Christ in his presence at his table. When a person participates in faith, renewing and strengthening his or her own trust in Christ for salvation, and believing that the Holy Spirit will bring spiritual blessing through such participation, then certainly additional blessing may be expected. So, um, kind of paving the way, how did, how, did, how did we get to the spot where Jesus is implementing a meal um, to, to mark what's about to happen in his crucifixion? So, um, it would come, as he's sitting at the table with the twelve, it would come as no surprise to them that Jesus was using a meal to mark this memorial. So uh, Adam and Eve, uh, God prepares a meal for Adam and Eve. Genesis 9, 3, after Noah and his family get off the boat, God provides food for Noah. Uh, Exodus 12, the uh, meal, the Passover on the eve of the Exodus, stood as an annual component for Jews to this day. They still annually practice the Passover. Exodus 24 on the Mount Sinai, giving the law, God calls up 70 elders to eat and drink with him. That, how cool is that? I want to see that on the replay, too. Um, God providing uh, manna throughout their wandering. Other texts to consider. David in Psalm 23, 5, so he says, God preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies. Proverbs 9, God's personification of wisdom invites the young man into her home for a meal. Jesus, who twice miraculously fed great multitudes after his resurrection, invited his disciples to eat and drink with him. The wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, in which we celebrate the consummation of redemption. John Frame says this, Whenever we take the supper, as when Israel took the Passover and the other meals, we renew the covenant relationship between God and ourselves. Um, One quick other note here. Uh, Speaking of all those things, uh, all those examples of God setting a table, giving a meal. Um, I, I'd encourage you men, uh, I don't know if this is online or not. Uh, CJ talks about all the time having a theology of food. Um, and I'd encourage you, this isn't directly tied to the Lord's Supper, but it informs it, right? There's a reason why uh, Jesus uses a meal to commemorate what's about to happen uh, in a similar way, because, uh, and the Jews expected that because of, of how food was used so often before. Um, if, if the way you enjoy food, eat food, think about food is not, this is a wonderful gift that God has given. And if you've never eaten a meal and rejoiced mid-bite, um, all right, so defining the Lord's Supper. <coughs> Westminster Confession 
of faith says, Our Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church until the end of the world, for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in all uh, uh, in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Wayne Grudem says this, the Lord's Supper is to be observed repeatedly throughout our Christian lives as a sign of continuing in fellowship with Christ. Matthew 26 is what Jesus says. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So it has past, present, and future references. We look to the past to remember Christ's death. We look to the present to receive nourishment um, and remembrance. And we look to the future as we anticipate his coming, remembering the Lord's death until he comes. Um, Let me pause there. Any questions on the definitions of the Lord's Supper? Let's keep moving. That's not that much content, so uh, we've got to hustle. So purposes of the Lord's Supper, we remember and we proclaim. So I lump these together because they have the same uh, uh, objective. Um, We remember them inwardly, but we also, through the word and through our participation, proclaim the truth in them outwardly to one another and to the world. So uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. um, uh, Again, we read this earlier. um, As often as you eat of it, so so we're... um, uh, we're doing this as often uh, proclaiming the Lord's death until he, he comes. So we are making a proclamation. John MacArthur says this, uh, For the Hebrew to remember meant much more than simply to bring something to mind, merely to recall that it happened. To truly remember is to go back in one's mind and recaptures much of the reality and significance of an event or experience as one possibly can. So what, what are we specifically, what specifically do, <laughs> let me try that again. What specifically do we remember and proclaim? Well, we remember his broken body and shed blood. Leon Moore says this, the body is for you. The emphasis is on the vicarious work of Christ. What happened to the body was for us. It's for you. It's for us. There was purpose in his suffering, a purpose of blessing for his people. Is that what you think about when you partake of the Lord's Supper? That's for you? Do we remember the fact that his body was broken, but we need to connect the fact that his body was broken and his blood was shed, not abstractly, but for specific people, for you specifically. We remember and proclaim his current presence and work in our lives individually and in our lives as a church. The fact that the cross was the ratification of a covenant we have with God, a covenant in which God promises ongoing personal relationship and help. Hebrews 8.10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. 
and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. His sanctifying work, I'm united with him and thus draw my strength and ability from him for the life he has called me to live. Just as bread and wine nourish and strengthen our bodies, so Jesus himself nourishes and strengthens our souls. It is in him and him alone that we find the grace to live the Christian life, our corporate relationship. We, that, that as his covenant child, we are united to all others of his covenant blessing. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of that one bread. So we think about it individually and the sanctifying work that he's doing in us. And we think about it corporately of what he's doing uh, for us as a people, corporately. Um, Promise of future glory. So we're also looking outward. The Lord's Supper is not only a past and present reference, but a future one as well. It's an anticipation. Um, So we've covered these uh, texts. Revelation 19. Let us the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We can see that the remembrances are serious and sobering, but they're also joyful and celebratory. They are intended not only to bring these truths to remembrance, but to seal them into our hearts. So to give us fresh assurance, which brings fresh joy, gratitude, hope, courage, commitment, so many other things. This, I believe, is a primary work of grace uh, that God intends to do through the sacrament. It is, again, a work that happens not simply because of the ceremony, but because of the faith that is elicited because of the ceremony. So, now we're going to kind of move into participation in the Lord's Supper. So, 1 Corinthians 10, 14-17. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I, sp- I speak as to sensitive, sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I said. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. This is also a great text in support of what we call fencing the table, which would just mean that the people who partake of the Lord's Supper have partaken in partook partaken partook in, um, uh, you guys know English better than I do, um, have partook in the blessings of, of Christ, are participa- uh, participants in his body and blood, which means that the people who take the bread and the cup are con- converts. Um, sacraments have no saving function. They are commanded by God, so we must participate. In fact, uh, have the privilege to do so, but they are not necessary for our salvation. So, jetting right along here, how should we participate? So, Scripture doesn't, or how often should we participate? This is a big question. Um, how often should we take the Lord's Supper? Uh, scripture doesn't explicitly say how often we should observe the Lord's Supper. We want to, as best as possible, avoid pragmatism or tradition, just for tradition's sake. 
So whether that tradition is taking it every week, and that's what we're used to, therefore we take it every week, or taking it once a month because that's what we're used to, and therefore pragmatism and tradition says we're going to take it once a month, <clears throat> we want to avoid that at all possible. Uh, Acts 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. 1 Corinthians 11, But in the following instructions I do commend you, because when you come together, so again, they're coming together for one would think uh, in their Sunday gathering, it is not for the better, but for the worse. May that not be said for any of our church gatherings. Uh, from the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Again, you see he's making a, a bit of a connection here that when they come together... There's factions, one's assuming that he's talking about uh, in their Sunday gathering. And then we get to this part, when you come together is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. <laughs> what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Strong rebuke there of how they were practicing the Lord's Supper. But also, uh, one could make an argument for uh, the church in Corinth as they were coming together, which would appear to be in their church gathering, which would be implemented every week. Um, seems that they're partaking the Lord's Supper, potentially. Um, so maybe another example here of uh, a weekly participation in the Lord's Supper. But we also see that Israel... Uh, have memorials and feasts less often. Passover feasts did not happen uh, every Sabbath. They weren't remembering the Exodus in that way over that meal every Sabbath. It was once a year. Um, and so, we, we, again, we don't have direct uh, direction from Scripture on how often we should partake in the Lord's Supper. Uh, let me move through these views of uh, Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli. Uh, and, and uh, full transubstantiation in the Roman Catholic system, um, and then we'll field some questions. So Calvin's spiritual view, which would be the view uh, that I would hold. Um, we looked at this uh, one of the first days on whether sovereign grace holds it explicitly or not. Uh, we at least hold it implicitly um, in, in how we speak of the language of uh, Lord's spiritual presence at the table. Um, I don't know of anyone Sovereign Grace who holds this wingly view, but we'll get to that. Um, so Calvin's spiritual view. We know that Jesus is present with us at all times through the Spirit, but in the Lord's Supper we are to expect and be aware of a more manifest sense of His presence with us. Westminster Confession says this, The body and blood of Christ being then spiritually present to the faith of believers as the elements are to their outward senses. So... Uh, the body and blood then being spiritually present to the faith of believers just as the elements are to their outward senses, just as the, the breadness of the bread and the wineness of the wine are to the, wine, uh, to the bread and wine. John Calvin says it this way, though. This is his view. Um, uh, thinking about all that the Roman Catholics were doing and the tradition they were living in, Calvin says, while the bread and wine remain unchanged... 
The Spirit raises the believer through faith to enjoy the presence of Christ in a way that is glorious and real, though indescribable. While the bread and the wine remained unchanged, it's important as we talk about other views of of the sacrament, the Spirit raises the believer through faith to enjoy the presence of Christ in a way that is glorious and real, though indescribable. Leon Morris says it this way, Here's a very real gift of the Savior in the sacrament, none the less real for being essentially spiritual. The sacrament is a median medium of communion with the body and blood of Christ in a real means whereby faith appropriates the blessings which flow from the glorified Christ in virtue of his death. And John Calvin once again, just as bread and wine sustain physical life, so are souls fed by Christ. We now understand the purpose of this mystical blessing, namely to confirm for us the fact that the Lord's body was once for all so sacrificed for us that we may now feed upon it and by feeding feel in ourselves the working of that unique sacrifice and that his blood was once so shed for us in order to be our perpetual drink. Um, Let me go through uh, different erroneous views of the presence. and then I'll field some questions. So views that uh, we would not agree with, I would not agree with, um, largely they're based off of John 6. I mean, they're obviously also <clears throat> taken from uh, 1 Corinthians 11 um, and Matthew, uh, what chapter was that? Um, 26? Um, yeah, Matthew 26, I think. Um, but John 6 here, uh, Jesus is looking out at the crowds of people and saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Strong words. Uh, context of that, which is helpful in terms of how do we hermeneutically interpret John 6 and how do we understand the elements at the table? Uh, the masses are following Jesus because he's continuing done, feed, fed multitudes of people. And they continue to come for physical, uh, to, to meet physical needs. And, and Jesus, obviously perceiving this, um, Uh, lays a rebuke out that those who would really come to him to find fulfillment need to come to him for who he is, not to him for what he can give from from bread and fish and, yeah. So transubstantiation. Uh, The Roman Catholic view uh, would see this, that during the Mass, the bread and wine are miraculously changed into the body and blood of Christ while still appearing to the senses to be bread and wine. This view uh, was also held by several in the early church, including Ignatius and Cyprian. So in speaking of the substance of the elements, there's a discussion of essential and accidental attributes. So essential attributes are the qualities at the core of a thing, and accidental attributes are the appearance, the smell, the taste, the texture, the sound. Qualities not at the core of the thing, but what they would call accidental. Um, So Greg Allison, he cites the Catechism of the Catholic Church here, 
says the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was offered 2,000 years ago participates in the atemporality of God. That's a big word that means he is not and cannot be limited in time. Accordingly, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, the, 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 the bread and the cup, are one single sacrifice. Um, it, it makes you wonder how, there's a lot of verses in Hebrews, I'm, we're going to keep moving. Um, so that would be transubstantiation, that all of the elements, the bread and the wine, miraculously turn into the actual body of Christ, the actual blood of Christ. So even though we taste bread, and it looks and smells like bread, and it smells like wine, that's only accidental. Um, th those things are accidental qualities, and at the core, the essential element of what's happening is you are eating the body of Christ, and you're drinking the blood of Christ. Uh, oh, the Westminster Confession says this, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood by, constant, by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant, not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the sacrament and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yes, of gross idolatries. So transubstantiation, you have consubstantiation. This would be uh, Martin Luther's view of, uh, the, um, of the Lord's Supper. And this is what Martin Luther says. What is asserted without the scripture or proven revelation may be held as an opinion, but need not be believed. But this opinion of Thomas Aquinas, who, who uh, early on proposed uh, transubstantiation, hangs so completely in the air without support of scripture or reason that it seems to me he knows neither his philosophy nor his logic. If you've read anything from Martin Luther, he can have some strong words at times. Um, yeah. So the Lutheran view would be that the body and blood of Christ are present. This is important terms here. That the body and blood of Christ are present in, with, under the bread and wine. When, in, with, and under. So in their, um, excuse me, with their con, uh, the, the <coughs> Latin word, so consubstantiation. Um, in other words, the bread and wine don't become the body and blood, like transubstantiation, but the receiver actually partakes of them along with the elements. So Martin Luther would say that when Jesus says, this is my body, that we're supposed to take that literally, not figuratively. Uh, belief that the human body of Christ could be everywhere. So both in the transubstantiation view and in the consubstantiation view, they're not seeing the risen, ascended Christ at, in his physical body being now permanently at the right hand of God the Father. They're seeing his physical body, his physical nature that he took on in the incarnation, uh, still being everywhere present. Martin Luther says this, since the divinity and humanity are one person in Christ, so the hypostatic union, the scriptures ascribe to the divinity because of this personal union, all that happens to humanity and vice versa. Greg Allison says, because of this union, Jesus Christ including his human nature, which in and of itself is localized in one space 
and not present in every space is ubiquitous or everywhere present. So they would not see uh, uh, any problem with saying that the human, um, I mean, Jesus is bodily right now at the right hand of the Father. So he, as he took on flesh and blood, he currently, right now, as we speak, in flesh and blood, is at the right hand of the Father. Martin Luther would not see any disconnect with the flesh and blood and the humanity of who Jesus Christ is uh, not being able to be physically everywhere present um, in, in, a, in a physical way, which is how he would see that the physical body of Christ is in uh, the, the elements. And then we have a, uh, the Zwingli view or the memorial view. So this view would take, this is my body, my blood, to be metaphorical or figurative. It signifies my body, but it's not actually my body. So Zwingli says this, the body of Christ has to be in some particular place in heaven by reason of its character as a true body. And again, seeing that the body of Christ rose from the dead, it is necessarily in one place. The body of Christ is not in several places at once and the same time anymore our bodies are. Keith Matheson uh, in his book that you got up here, uh, says, according to Zwingli, the sacraments were a means by which the Christian pledged and demonstrated his allegiance to the church. He argued that the Eucharist was essentially uh, a, a commemoration of the death of Christ. So when someone's partaking of the Lord's Supper, it's, it's primarily a way um, to, to remember, but also to show others uh, one's allegiance to Christ. So um, Luther and Zwingli uh, had, had it out with this stuff. There's a lot of uh, debate here. And they actually met at the Martburg Colloquy. Colloquy. What's the word? How do you say that, James? Yeah, there you go. In 1529, they met in Martburg for a, a, a meeting of the minds. And they brought their posses with them. Uh, and they had a lot of differences. But uh, so they, they came with 15 kind of agenda items to work through. Luther and Zwingli did um, on differences they were having. Because Protestant Reformation, right, it was, there was so much. And once the fire got lit in the 95 Thesis, that's why we celebrate Reformation Day or why in America we do. I hope you guys do too, October 31st. Uh, Luther nailing his 95 Thesis. Um, uh, things exploded. People are looking at, at, at the doctrine of God, uh, Christ and the nature of faith all in new ways. And as that happens, people are coming to genuine faith and trust in the Lord and, and re-looking at the traditions of the church. So anyway, you had these different camps and, and posses form, and they all come together. And they found common ground in 14 out of the 15 issues that they were working for. However, there was no agreement on the Lord's Supper on Luther's consubstantiation and Zwingli's memorial view. Um, so I think that, um, I think that uh, as we're coming to the Lord's table, um, uh, as we remember and as we practice what <coughs> Jesus uh, particularly lives, I think, I, I think the Zwingli view is a much better view than uh, consubstantiation. Certainly a better view than transubstantiation, where I'm literally eating um, the, the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. Um, that, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, where is, 
Leon Morris's quote again. Uh, a very real gift of the Savior in the sacrament, none the less real for being essentially spiritual. The sacrament is a medium. So because it's one of the ordinances of the church that, God, that Jesus uh, gave to us, a medium of communion with the body and blood of Christ in a spiritual sense, and a real means whereby faith appropriates the blessings which flow from the glorified Christ in virtue of his death. Um, I, yeah, I think the Zwingli view is an okay view. I, I, I think that through church history um, and looking at, behold, I'm with you always, I, 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 I think that, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit um, who is with us always. Is that what Jesus had in view when, when he said, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, at the capstone of in, in, uh, implementing the Lord's Supper? Um, Zwingli would say, yes, uh, we have the presence of Jesus now in the Holy Spirit. Um, and I would say, yes, 100%, absolutely, amen. Um, and yet it seems like that statement coming at the end of the institution of something that we're proclaiming Christ's uh, body and blood uh, until his return. And then uh, a, a tag of that of I'm with you always was that presence then look like in that meal. Um, that's where I would lean towards uh, where John Calvin says, you know, the bread and the wine, they're not changing as we're eating them. Uh, this, but the spirit in that meal that Jesus uh, uh, installed causes to raises the believer through faith to enjoy the presence of Christ. I'm with you always in a uh, way that is glorious and real, real though indescribable. Um, yeah, so I think at our church, when we gather and meet, um, they always say, if you're an unbeliever and you're here today, we are so happy to have you here. Um, we are thrilled that you would come to our church this Sunday morning. Um, but this meal that we're about to partake in is not for you to partake in. Um, but here's what we would ask you to do. See what's happening. Uh, look around and watch uh, people who've put their faith in Christ uh, eat and drink in memory and remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Um, and make note, come and repent and be a part of this family, something along those lines. Um, so only believers would share the Lord's Supper. We have a need for self-examination. Um, so whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. John MacArthur says, Communion calls for self-examination and purging of sins, thus purifying the church. Nothing is more vital to the church's ongoing regular confrontation of sins in the lives of its people than the thoughtful expression and devotion to remembrance of the cross. Part of that is we're going to, wanting to uh, guard against or look for uh, any signs of disunity. So uh, we are celebrating Jesus' death, uh, but we are also celebrating our unity in him. That's what, as we come together as one body, that's what we're doing. The body is one 
uh, loaf. Bless you. This was the Corinthians' major problem, and shown in chapter 10. So Wayne Grudem says this, We ought to ask whether our relationships in the body of Christ are in fact reflecting the character of the Lord uh, whom we meet there and whom we represent. And finally, one practical application is to guard against going through the motions. The Lord's Supper can be received without faith or discernment. We need to see it as a holy, God-ordained event that we approach with reverence, faith, and expectation, not as a formality or empty tradition. And just so I didn't put this in the outline, there's closed, some, some churches will practice uh, completely closed communion, which means if you're there, the only people who can partake in the Lord's Supper are members of the church. And the rationale for that would be, um, one, uh, the soberness of First uh, Corinthians 11 on, on eating and drinking judgment upon themselves, but also uh, the church administering the sacrament, the pastor's uh, elders overseeing that process. There's a concern that if, if someone coming in, partaking of the elements, um, are, are not, if we don't know them as our flock, know whether they're under church discipline or rampant sin or a convert, how can we really give them the, the bread and the cup in good faith? Um, so that's, that would be the argument for close communion. Um, we would see that as uh, a way that if yeah, we, we don't know the hearts of men in, in those cases. You, you prep for, for communion and what you say pastorally. It's pretty comprehensive. So when we do the Lord's Supper, we do it monthly. Uh, I think our church does it monthly too. We don't have a good reason for not doing it weekly, by the way. Um, but here we are. Uh, uh, we, it, it's, a, it's probably a three to five minute. We're saying, you know, this is who it's for. This is not. This is uh, who it's not for, and that would include people in unrepentant sin. It would include people uh, under church discipline. So we 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 go into detail about who should partake of the Lord's Supper, um, and, but we're not uh, closed. Closed communion. Uh, Bob sends us. Uh, Mike was just asking how we do our schedule with preaching and with songs and with. All that stuff. Um, so Bob sends out to our team every week um, a number of things. So we've got, so this week we're going to have five songs. Um, so we have the chord charts for all of them. Um, I, it's not like I need that. I'm not up there uh, singing or doing anything. Um, and then <clears throat> we have uh, our Sunday service. And so... Um, so it's 90 minutes. Typically, we start at 10.30, and we end around noon-ish. I think this will serve you guys more than BCO. Speak now or forever. Hold your peace. Okay. All right, good. Um, so, yeah, 10.30, we uh, start with a call to worship. Uh, call to worship is generally two or three minutes long. Um, uh, the, the guys make fun of me. I'm the only one who, who's – every time I have call to worship, I say this every time. Say, you know, good morning. Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, if you could please stand for our call to worship. And I say this every Sunday that I get to do call to worship. Um, so good to be together. Um, as a church, we prioritize hearing God. And so we begin and end every service being addressed by God through his word. This morning's call to worship comes from Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9. This is God's word. How precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind. 
take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Church, you might be gathered here this morning, and the thought of being protected in the shadow of the wing and feasting on abundance and and being uh, filled with drink from the river of God's delight is not how you feel coming into this service. But God's word speaks a different truth into your life more than your feelings. Something like that. Now, you'd expound on that for another minute or two. Um, and, uh, and then I'd walk off the stage. Boom. Bob um, does his thing with singing songs. Um, we're doing communion this Sunday. So we've blocked seven minutes for communion. We don't do it to where people come up. We have a team that brings uh, the elements to uh, the seat, so it kind of like passes around the rows. We start in different places of the uh, auditorium, so uh, it, it moves a little bit faster, but um, people take as a church. So all the elements are passed out while a, song's, um, <clears throat> while a song is, is playing. Um, Gary comes back up and gives uh, a word of exhortation about what we're doing. What, what are we doing in partaking of the Lord's Supper? Um, he, he, he fences the table. Um, if you're here and you don't, we, all of that stuff we just talked about. Um, so rough timing of all of that um, is seven minutes. We do two more songs, so four songs before uh, pastoral prayer announcements and the sermon. Um, and so all of that from 1030 to roughly, that takes about 30 minutes. So call to worship, two songs, communion, uh, two songs, takes roughly 30 minutes. Yeah, so that's kind of how we're rolling through the uh, front part of it. And then um, band come, or uh, pastoral prayer, Steve's coming up, band's putting their stuff down, going back down to their seats. Um, he gives a brief exhortation about just, you know, what, what's happening in prayer. So it's an instructional moment. Um, we have, uh, the reason typically, and I'll, I'll pull up another one of these too so we can see that doesn't have communion. Typically our pastoral prayers are between probably six and seven minutes long, five to seven minutes long. Um, you know, jo- Josh said on Sunday we've had ones that have gone you know, eight or ten minutes. That's probably an exaggeration. I don't think we've, I don't think we've had pastoral prayers that have gone ten minutes. But they're pretty long. Um, and, you know, most people, when they think of prayer in the church, it's not, like, we're getting work done in our pastoral prayer. Um, we're, we're praying for issues in the world. We're praying for other churches. We're praying for uh, sicknesses, uh, job situation. I mean, all kinds of things. So it, it, it both orients them to thinking about issues in the world well. So as you, if you guys have opportunities, Michael might be the only one uh, to pray uh, some people really hold it to the office of elder. Some people would extend that out a little bit further. But um, uh, as you're thinking about that, there's a lot you can get done in pastoral prayer that orients your church both to needs in the church. So uh, last week, as uh, whoever uh, was was on pastoral prayer last week um, was praying for, for me, coming to see you guys. Uh, I was probably in flight as that all was happening. Um, there, there would be some people in the church be like, oh, I, I didn't realize that was this week. Or I didn't know Chad was going to, uh, to Trinity Fellowship to see that. And, and that informs for them their prayers through the week. 
Uh, they wouldn't have known about it had it not been for that being a part of the pastoral prayer. Um, then um, Steve will come down, Brian will come right back up, or up, and this is, we switch these around all the time, so it's different people. Um, welcome the church. Um, we, we have some things that we give out to visitors. So we have CJ's uh, book, uh, The Cross Center Life. It would just get, it, it's a gift to you for being here. We also have some Sovereign Grace music CDs for anyone who actually listens to, to CDs anymore. Um, I don't know how many of those maybe get tossed on their way out. <laughs> uh, they're like, my car doesn't even have a CD player. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, we have a, a time where we just instruct how God calls us to give. That's a great opportunity, too. I would say 80% of the time when we're talking about the offering, it's an opportunity for the pastor to thank the church for uh, faithful giving. Um, not every church can do that, um, but our church, we can. Our church gives faithfully. Uh, they give their money. Um, and so it's a great opportunity for us just to go, church, thank you. You guys are sacrificial in your, I mean, it just, again, you want to think about each one of these moments pastorally. We're not checking a box of, okay, we need to get offering. How can I have a pastoral heart in teaching on giving? Very, I mean, it's not like I'm doing a sermon, but something that teaches people, okay, we're, we're not making this stuff up. I, we're asking for your money because God calls us to give, and he calls us to give cheerfully. And, and then you can thank them, and that, that's pastoral in and of itself. You're bringing the people of your church into, and we talk about elder ruled and, and people, the activity of your congregation, they're being brought into their shepherds as, as you're doing these elements. So, um, and then announcements. Singles. We have a meeting at Chad and Casey Hester's house this coming Sunday, 7 p.m. They're talking about um, different ways that sins can mar uh, manhood and womanhood. Um, I have snacks, come, whatever. And we move on to the next announcement. Um, and then he comes off the stage, CJ comes up, preaches for roughly 45 minutes. He comes down, we sing, we sing a song. Um, CJ often will go, sing another one. Uh, I mean, you know, he's just, he's right up here. And uh, if, if we have time and feels like we can, we'll do a um, second song. And then uh, whoever preaches typically comes up and does the benediction at the end.